next several weeks, we're going to be talking about work. Uh, most of us do that. And uh, you're either working in the home or in a job or in school. And uh, this, these ideas about work from the scriptures are very, I think, important and uh, will give us an edge to make a difference in the world. And, um, uh, and let me begin by first saying that, that work was really God's plan from the beginning for humankind before sin entered in. It wasn't like in the garden of God that, that Adam and Eve were playing, uh, you know, video games and just sort of chilling, eating, you know, nachos. And all of a sudden they sinned and God said, okay, get out of here and get to work. That wasn't what happened. <laughs> in fact, God works. How many of you are glad God works? He still works in our lives, right? And, and work is supposed to be a good thing. In fact, we read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. This was something that was rewarding. It was something that was participating in the good that God was creating, that the world was still being ordered, that human beings were involved in ordering it by naming creatures and participating and tending the garden of God, adding to the beauty and to the justice and to the love that was in the world. This was God's dream. But then sin enters. And when sin enters, a lot of things get hexed. A lot of things get off. And one of those things that sort of got messed with is this issue of work. And instead of it becoming a fulfilling experience, it becomes, it becomes filled with sort of a debilitating harshness. We pick up the narrative in chapter 3, post the failure after sin has entered in and sort of crawled its way into the human condition. It says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife. I think I just heard the Holy Spirit there. <laughs> or maybe that was a self-revelation. <laughs> because you listened to your wife <clears throat> and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. He said, as a result, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, not good toil, painful work, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce, the result of your work won't just be good fruit. You'll have thorns and thistles with it. And you'll eat the plants of the field. So even though you'll have some good that comes out of it, it'll be filled with a lot of ungood. By the sweat of your brow, it won't just be something peaceful that'll make you break a sweat. You'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so we see work taking on kind of a hurtful kind of place in our lives. And the result of of our energies would be less than what God had imagined it because there's a new kind of tension, a new kind of filter, a new kind of resistance that's in the world. The good news is, is that even though that work had a curse on it, Jesus has come to take away the curse, to somehow redeem and restore, not just work, but everything else, but somehow that, that in work, it, it would redeem it from being painful and sweaty and to turn it into something again that is fruitful and joyful and fulfilling. But I would suggest to you that we have to fight for that with our trust and with our faith and learn how to approach that workspace to redeem it and to not let it just slip into the world that's fallen. The Christmas song that we sing every year and Christmas is coming uh, and I love the Advent season uh, is that, remember the joy to the world, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And one of the... Uh, the um, Verses says this, no more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns, remember the work had thorns and thistles, but no more thorns infest the ground. 
because he comes to make his blessings flow. How far do those blessings flow? They flow far as the curse is found. They flow far as the curse is found, far as, far as the sun goes, the curse is found. After sin, curse was found in work, but Jesus redeems that. And somehow, you know, we, most of us know how hard a particular job can be. Some of us who have, have had jobs think, I totally understand that jobs can be a curse because I'm cursed because of this job, right? Where we have found reasons to despise our job and reasons why we wanted to quit it. And this it actually describes some of you today. You might be in this situation. But the scripture calls us to approach work differently. That we can snag it out of that place of ugh. And it tells us that, that most work, as long as it's good work, as long as it's work that doesn't destroy or hurt other people, that most work can be done with a clean conscience for the glory of God. And as a result, it can have a new level of fruitfulness and a new level of joy. And scripture teaches us that no work is so menial that it cannot be rendered as worship. <laughs> and, and here's where we can have our attitudes transformed and, and where we can discover joy in the midst of toil, where, where whether we mow lawns or mend bones or, or, or whether we balance ledgers or pave roads, I mean, no matter what we're doing, our work can become Eucharistic. The notion of the Eucharist, the notion of the table is that Jesus was broken and poured out for the world and that we're thankful for it. And there's a thanksgiving in the midst of the tension of the death and the resurrection of Christ that we can fight in our hearts that our lives can be given and work in a very sacramental way where we're trusting. It's, it's just where it's God's, like a sacrament has God's presence in it, but it's all jacked up with thanksgiving. That's the way we're to approach our work. If we do that, I mean, how would it make it look? I mean, what if, we took the impulses to complain about our job or the people we work with and instead to redirect that impulse to give thanks for our job, to take another look at it, a second look at it. My immediate response, my first look at most situations is, is a reaction to defensiveness and judgment and control and analysis. You know, I mean, I am better at calculating than I am at loving and uh, by nature, I have a critical mind, a sort of demanding heart. I have the spiritual gift of impatience. <clears throat> but you know, these things are both a curse and a blessing to me. They're a curse because they cause me to, to be more selfish and to sin. But they're a blessing because they teach me just how much I need the Savior. And that if I let them teach me and if I pause when they arrive into my soul, which is usually the first look at things. If I'll stop, they'll teach me to remember that I need the Savior in the moment called now. And in that moment, I can experience a second look at what I'm going through. So I, I cannot risk losing touch with my demons because they are good teachers. <laughs> the things that torment us actually can teach us. You and I are not called to be perfect. We're going to have wrong impulses. Uh, but we are called to surrender those wrong impulses to a Savior who will help us have victory over the devils in our lives. Right? What if we started learning how to approach work in that second view, second look way, where instead of the impulse of complaining or gossiping about 
coworkers, we stop, we address it, we call them the Savior, and then we turn them to impulses to pray for people. Pray for those very people we want to complain about. What if we took the impulse to say to our boss, take this job and shove it. And we say instead, God, we want to worship you in this work. We want to reflect and give thanks because somehow this job is helping me pay my electric bill. Somehow this is helping me buy some food. Somehow this is helping me do something with my life that's meaningful, right? I'm not suggesting that this is natural or easy, but what if it's Christian? What if, what if this is the why of prayer and the why we gather and the why we come to the table so that these kinds of moments of reflection can help us learn to catch our first glances in their evilness in order for them to be surrendered to a second glance of approaching God the way he asks us to. It's a wrestle, but what if that's the point of it? What if, what if work life and our life involvement with others that are close to us are really supposed to be kind of a tension of dance, of moving and reflection, pause, a kind of work liturgy where we're sort of experiencing a pull and a push to try to find how God can have a presence there and bless the space called work. There's a text in Psalm, Psalm 90, where the psalmist is praying, and they sing these prayers, but the psalmist prays this, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let your favor be upon us so that you can establish the work. Have your favor come on us so that workspace is different. I'd like to invite you just for a moment to pray this with me. This prayer that the psalmist does, say it with me. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now let's do it again, but this time sort of gather your heart, think about your job, think about your work, whether it's in the home or in the, in the classroom or wherever it is. And let's say it again. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Somehow, I think this matters to God. Now, let me say something that was probably more important to say 15 years ago than it is to say today, but I want to say it anyway today. You're not a second-class citizen, a second-class Christian, if you're not in the full-time Christian ministry. Now, you know, where you preach the Bible and teach stuff and are involved with Christian ministry or on missions, that sort of thing. 20 years ago, there was a huge rush to Bible schools from lots of people that had normal jobs and good jobs and just to jump in because on some level, without saying it uh, in, in, in kind of an unspoken way, there was this sense that you really didn't matter unless you were in ministry. And that somehow, in, in fact, church leaders were so idolized at one point in some of the, some of the traditions that some of us are from, charismatic tradition, that we kind of thought, well, if you, if you want to do anything, if you want to be anything, you should be in the ministry. So lots of people started jumping in the ministry. I'm not sure that that was God's idea. Because I think that, that I think that God is just as excited about what goes on in the course of the week than he does on what happens on the weekends. I don't think God's sitting around thinking, I can't wait till the weekend. 
or I can really move. I don't think he thinks that. I think he's as excited what's going to happen when you leave this place and drive home today and what's going to happen this week as he is what's happening right now in this moment. For him, I mean, I, I, there's an interesting verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, and what's interesting about it is that this is Paul addressing the church at Thessalonica, and Paul, who in this chapter says Jesus is about to return. I mean, this is, I mean, this is pregnant with apocalyptic thought. I mean, it's like, man, be ready. It could happen at any moment. And in that context, instead of saying, better get out, quit your jobs, go and tell somebody about Jesus, you know, that kind of impulse, watch what he tells them. He said, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you. This was the tradition. This is what they were told. So that your daily life, somebody said the problem with daily life is it's so daily. So that your daily life may win people. May win respect so that what you are and what you say and how you live matters. It has gravitas. It has weight. So that you will not be dependent on anybody. See, I think, I think that sometimes we're convinced that, that people would be more reached if we talk more with our words instead of live more with our lives. But Paul was saying, if you can live out a life as a parent, as a, as a, as a worker, as, a, as whatever you're doing, and you engage in it in the right way, it will cause people to go, what up with you? And it will cause you to win their attention so that you can help bring transformation to their lives. I'm convinced that if the church really is going to reach the most amount of people, People have to stay out of the full-time ministry. In fact, we could have a bumper sticker. Reach the world by staying out of the full-time ministry. <laughs> now, there are people legitimately called, and you better answer the call. But you know the people that I've talked to that are legitimately called most of the time? They, 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 you can see where God dragged them. The markings where God dragged them in. You Don't long for something because of status or something you perceive or something you think. Long for the things that resonate in your heart. There's an old quote, some attributed to Martin Luther. Uh, most scholars say it, it doesn't appear to be in any of his formal writings, so they're not sure it's Martin Luther, but it sounds so Lutherish. I'm just going to read it to you and attribute it to him. <laughs> Here's a quote The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does, does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes or his business cards. <laughs> but by making good shoes. There's a concept. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. <laughs> See, what if God cares about the world? What if the foundation of his movements and redeeming lives is the fact that he sends the sunshine and the rain and he's good to everyone who's both just and unjust? Remember, Jesus said, you're most like the Father when you're kind to the people who, are un who don't can't return it to you. He's, when you see that he's this reckless, incautious giver of joy. What if we're supposed to walk into the world trying to make it beautiful, trying to make it more just, trying to make it more loving, 
And that even though that's not ultimate, and people need to come to Christ and experience Christ, but what if that becomes the foundation for them to respect you enough to let you speak into them the words of redemption? I think we've put this too low. I think what I'm saying to you is your daily life matters. Your work life matters, or at least God wants it to matter. There's a sacredness to hard, honest work. And please hear this. How you work is monumentally more important than where you work. How you work is monumentally more important than where you work. I do think God ultimately wants you in jobs that are fulfilling to you. I think you, are, you and I are all kind of have purpose and we're designed in a certain way. It's not unlike, <coughs> excuse me, Aristotle had this notion of ergon. He called, it's a Greek word, ergon. What it meant was when, it, when a person or a being or a thing does what it's designed to do, it, it's its ergon, it, it resonates. It's like a hammer is best when it's hammering. A saw is best when it's sawing. And if a saw longs to be a hammer, it'll just hurt itself and do a bad job. So I think ultimately you have to find what your ergon is. Get your ergon, right? You gotta find what it is that resonates in you. But even before you do that, that's, that's later work. First work is learning how to work to begin with. There are ABCs to work that if you don't learn how to work, how to think about your boss, how to think about the job, how to be a boss that's in a way that's appropriate, how to approach the work itself. If you don't know, why would it matter you get into your dream job? Because if you get into your dream job, you won't represent God anyway. So what are some ABCs? That's what we're gonna talk about in this whole series. A couple of ideas about this. One is basic ABC is you and I need to learn to recognize that our jobs are not really our source, not as Christians. But our jobs are really a vehicle that God uses to provide to us, that really God is our source. He is the source of our financial security. He is the source of our safety. He is the source of our provision. He is the source of our being understood or having some sense of, of, um, of effectiveness in the world. It's got to be centered on God as Christians. We cannot make our jobs more than God intended them to be or they will become like gods to us and it'll pollute it. It'll make it weird, and we can't afford that if we want to bring God's heart to bear. In Deuteronomy, 20, or Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18, it talks about, this is a text that says, but remember the Lord your God. Remember the Lord your God. See, sometimes we forget. We just forget. But he said, don't forget this. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he. Everybody say, it is he. It is say it again. It is, it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. He confirms his covenant as he swore to his forefathers as it is today. He's saying, look at God is the one who's your source. One of the many names that are given to, uh, about God to Israel, one of the names that God gave them, said that he called me this like a nickname, was Jehovah Jireh. And it means the Lord that provides. And so the Christian sees her gift as a gift from God. No matter what it is. We first stop and say, no, no, second look. That's just what it is naturally, but what, it's a gift from God. Not a human kindness, not a human origin, not just the human uh, economy. This is a gift from God. If you embrace it like this, you'll lose the fear of losing jobs. Because if you know God is your source, if you did lose a particular job, your real boss is God. He's well-connected. 
He will provide for you. And listen to me. God will test you on this. It's, it's so important that you and I understand we cannot let our jobs be controllers of us or we will articulate our hearts to make sure we're always pleasing men, pleasing bosses, pleasing people instead of respecting and honoring and bringing his life to bear. This whole God is my source thing is really what's at the heart of the business of tithing. I remember when I used to hear preachers talk about tithing, it was almost like they were trying to say, you know, if you tithe, you're making God owe you. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I want what, I've, what I'm owed from God. <laughs> but I actually knew, I'm not kidding you, I actually knew a preacher who carried around, he did a ticker tape list of, of what he tithed and give and, and carried it around in his pocket to see how much God owed him. And I used to think, you know, how, how can you be that dumb and remember to breathe? Listen, we, we're not into this to, we don't tithe to obligate God. We tithe as an expression of the fact that we're saying, when $100 comes into my life and I give $10 back to God, I'm saying, God, you're my source. You're the one that gave me strength to even have this job, right? This starts way back in the Old Testament. In the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, it means the book of beginnings, we see Abram, later called Abraham, in Genesis 14. Abram had come from defeating this dude and all these kings. And he comes to, to Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. And he brought out bread and wine, Melchizedek did, which is a foreshadowing of, of this moment. In fact, Jesus in Hebrews is called a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And it says that, that Melchizedek, he, brought out, he was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed Abram. He said, you've won this battle because you've been blessed by God, most high creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. It is he who has made you wealthy. It is he who has blessed you. And watch what it says. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The tithe was based on the acknowledgement that God is your source. And then it says, the king of Sodom later comes to Abram. Give me the people and, and keep all the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of, your, of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. See, if we're going to work as Christians, we must intentionally embrace the idea, no one makes me rich but God. No one makes me rich but God. We tithe to remind ourselves. No one makes me rich but God. We tithe to calibrate our souls to the idea. No one makes me rich but God. God is my source. God is my boss. See, money is less dangerous when we see God as our source. Because do not kid yourself. Money is not a neutral thing. If you're, just, if you're not careful... You will be running after money. You can take a promise like God will prosper you, but secretly run after money and never deal with that sin. You need to die to that stuff. Jesus said you cannot serve. He said it's a, it's a, it's, that money vies for your affection. It pulls at you. It, it wants to set itself up as a God. He said in Matthew 6, you can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate one, love the other, you'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. Money. See, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. And people, if you're not careful, you'll think, if I get more money, I have more power. 
more money, more power, more money. See, money is trying to be God. People that, that, that when you look at God, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. And people that have lots of money think they know everything. God is, is omnipresent. Means he's present everywhere. People think, if I get more money, I can go anywhere I want to go. And if you're not careful, you'll be serving money, claiming God's blessing, when in reality, you're worshiping the demonic. We need to stay out of the gravitational pull of that kind of stuff. One of the ways we do it is tithing. Another way we do it is by praying regularly. Remember this one? The Didache that Blaine quoted from earlier, which was a wonderful book written about 50 AD. Was, it, really did, it didn't get into the canon because it was mostly considered a, a kind of a, a handbook of practice. It was not so much, well, anyway, it wasn't so much orthodoxy, it was orthopraxis. So it was kind of a practice of what they would do. And they said, pray this the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And we pray it. Say with me, our Father who art in heaven, thy, thy on earth as it is, give us this day our daily bread. See, we're to pray. God, you're my bread giver. You give me. Now, thank you. You're using this job. Thank you that, that somehow you're helping me meet electric bills. You're helping me do this. But, but, my, but my job is not my source. You are my source. And if you, if you don't learn how to do this while you're working in some menial entry-level job that you're sort of bored with, you will not have much value to God if he ever gets you into your dream job. You'll represent yourself. This is ABC work life. We have to learn this as believers. And the last thing I have time to tell you is, is that the reason that we work another ABC of this is we work because God called us to work, which means we do not work for money. Now, that may sound really odd, but we don't. We work because God calls us, that's the primary thing, and we receive the pay as though it came to us from God, as a blessing, as a reward for obeying him and working. That's how we're to think about it. We're to snag it and think about it differently. This has profound kinds of repercussions in your thinking. Uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, and the context here is work. Now, he's using old vernacular because they only had slaves and rulers and that kind of thing. We don't have slaves, thankfully, today. But, but we could put it in modern vernacular this way. Slaves or employees, obey your earthly masters or your employers with respect and fear. Not just because of them, to them but with sincerity of heart as though you would obey Christ. Otherwise, what he's saying is, go beyond. Take a second look. Don't look at this on face value. You're surrendering and serving your masters as though they were Christ. Obey them, not to win favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ. That's, you're really employees of Christ. Do the will of God. Look at that. Work is the will of God. What's the will of God? A lot of times, it's just working well. It may not be the ultimate will of God, work, the ultimate job that he ultimately has for you. But listen, work at whatever you're working at with your heart as the will of God. Serve half-heartedly. Serve commensurate with how much you're paid. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving Jesus Christ, not people. Because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or whether he's free. 
God will bless you. God will reward you. That's why you can afford to do it wholeheartedly. Even if the boss you have, the company you have will not reward you for all the ways you've given yourself, God's keeping track. If you do this, your attitude about your job will not be governed by how much you're paid. Man, if they just pay me more, I'd just be happier here. You wouldn't allow yourself to go there. Your diligence on your job would not be governed by how much money you're paid. You know how many people are diligent, commensurate with how much they're paid, and they basically hold out on their bosses, hold out on their companies. Why? Because I'm not being paid that much. I'm worth more than that. So I'm, just, I'm only being paid about 20% of what I think I'm worth, so I'm going to give them about 20% of the work I can do. <clears throat> Don't, you don't, And you're a Christian, but you're acting like a freaking pagan. Pagans do that. <laughs> Pay me more, I'll work more. Listen, what if your boss came to you and said, listen, I'm going to start paying you $500 an hour. If that would change how you work, you're a pagan. You're serving money, not God. This should make you feel uncomfortable right now. Your commitment to your job should not be governed by money or by how much you're paid. It should be governed by your commitment to God. Now, that doesn't mean that your job, if it isn't meeting your needs, or you sense it isn't your ergon, and you sense there's something more, and, and, you, and you're in a situation, it's fine to look for something else. There's nothing wrong with that. It's fine to try to do stuff to increase your capacities and that kind of thing. But you better, while you're on that job, keep a heart of absolute commitment, absolute working hard, giving yourself to it as unto the Lord. The bottom line is God will reward you beyond your current situation. But he watches you in your current situation. Be faithful there, and he will cause the faithfulness to increase in your life or to bring fruit into your life. <laughs> I, I, uh, in my own personal life, um, I experienced this firsthand. Um, I went to a nursing home in Marshfield, Wisconsin. This was back in the 70s. And it was minimum wage, a little over minimum wage, about $3.68 an hour is what I made an hour. And when I, when, you know, you get into a job like that, and it's, it's a lot of menial work. You're taking care of uh, elderly people. And a lot of them back in that time, there were really, just a lot of people in those contexts were in bad ways. Um, they had dementia. Uh, a lot of them were not mobile. A lot of them were bedridden and, and, and cantankerous because they don't have much control of anything. Everything's been taken away from them. And so sometimes the only control they have is anger and, and being resistant and sometimes, you know, I was in that situation, you wouldn't believe how many times I observed meanness from the staff to these innocent people. And I remember in my heart feeling like God wanted me to approach this job unto him. And so I got in there and, and you know, a lot of people <laughs> would do the least. It was, you know, approach it. Most people approach their jobs like vitamins. Minimum daily requirement. Keep it on the DL, right? I remember sensing, no, I need to give my best. So I'd work really hard, I'd get my stuff done, and then I started, instead of taking breaks, now I was 18, didn't need breaks, I need breaks now. <laughs> but you know, people just took breaks to take breaks, and they would take them long, they'd sit in those, back in the day when you could smoke, and you'd, you'd go into 
you know, little side rooms and closets filled with smoke and people sitting there for, you know, 45 minutes when their break was 15. And, and I got ostracized because I didn't just do that. I just kept working. And, and when I got done with my work, I started going around helping the other uh, people with their work, helping them make the beds, helping them shower the patients and that kind of thing. And then when I had some extra time, I'd go back, I'd do some back rubs and do that. It was not my job. But I remember thinking, this matters to God. And I was doing that. And I, and, and I got, I was in that job for about six months and realized that I'd gotten a couple of, of raises. And, and I, uh, the, the lady told me the last raise I got, she said, this is the most you can get. She said, this position is dead-ended. There's, there's nothing more. This was not my ergot. This was not, not the zenith for me. But I remember thinking to myself, it doesn't matter. I, I didn't work less. I gave myself. And, uh, and, and I wanted, just to give you one vignette of what happened, and I'm going to get kind of graphic with you here. So if this grosses you out, just remember it's Pastor Ed preaching, and you should be grossed out. <laughs> but you know, you know how sometimes you run into people at work, you know, Philistines? You know, they're the people that are, <laughs> the people that tormented the Jews. How many of you run into people? They're just flat Philistines, man. They're just, they just torment you. They're always right. They're just punks. Well, I had this Philistine who was an old guy who I cared for. And he was one of these guys that he, he was bedridden. He couldn't talk. And all he would do was be mad at you. Every time you tried to make his bed, every time you tried to change him because he would defecate himself and you would change him, he would just, he was just mad as a hornet. And, and, I, and he would be one of the guys, and I'm kidding you not, after you, right after you get done finishing cleaning him up, he'd lay back and he'd purposely defecate himself. And they had to do the whole thing again. I mean, you, you know, there was something in me that thought, you, you really? No, it's, it's hard to give and give and give when there's something. And sometimes that's why sometimes there's can be abuse there because the impulse is to get back. But I remember feeling in my heart, no, no, just give yourself. And, and one particular day when I was doing it, he defecated himself and I did it and cleaned it. And then he did it again, I cleaned it. And I'm, and I'm breathing. Okay, Lord, I'm doing this unto you. This is as if it's you. And he screamed. And I could tell when he did it again, he screamed. And somehow when he urinated, and I'm going to get graphic with you, he screamed. I thought, what's wrong? So I looked down and he was not just a Philistine. He was an uncircumcised Philistine. Literally, uncircumcised guy. And he was about 88, and his skin had gotten real dry and crackly. And his, an uncircumcised person means their penis has not been circumcised. And so I'm looking down there, and I could see red sores in there. I remember thinking, oh my gosh. Every time he urinates, he screams. So I went to the nursing station. I said, okay, so-and-so, I think it was Charlie, actually, is down here, and he... Uh, he, he urinates and, and he's infected. And she said, oh, well, he's, he's, this, this is why we encourage people to circumcise. When you get older, sometimes you can have this kind of problem where they can't circumcise them now. It might kill them. I mean, it's just a very traumatic pain. So I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, she said, well, that'll be quite a process. So she told me what to do. I'd have to clean him out underneath that uncircumcised area. I'd have to grab his penis, stick a thing in there, clean him out, then put in a bunch of stuff inside there and do it over a period of a week or so. Oh, happy day. <laughs> so I did. I went down there, and I would have to tie him up because he just would resist everything. Tie his legs, or tie him up, tie him all up. And then I'd tell him, Charlie, I have to, I have to go down to your penis 
and I've got to grab it and I'm going to start cleaning you out because you're all infected down there and that's why you're screaming. You know, it's like Gollum. So I'm doing this job. Now, I kid you not. This is not, you know, this is not my ergon. I'm cleaning him out. Every day I came in, I cleaned him out and put the cream, cleaned him out. It took me about a week or so to get that thing cleared up. But I'm telling you, when I did that, I would sense the presence of God. Like somehow, I mean, nobody knew. Nobody was watching. Nobody was paying attention. But he was. And I was making this life better for this guy. And I felt like that mattered to God. Every bit is any counseling I've done or any preaching I've done. It mattered to God. It's a dead-end job. But I remember when I, I told the Lord, Lord, I need something else because I can't pay my stuff, right? And this was back in the 70s. Jobs were really scarce. And we were in a town. The only place that was a great place to work was the hospital because it was a huge hospital. There's a big story behind that. But in a town of 18,000 people, we had over 400 doctors. It was a huge complex. And they said, you wanted to work anywhere, work at the clinic, work at the hospital. And out of the blue, as hard as jobs were to get, the guy from the boss from that PT department, physical therapy department, called me up. He said, Ed, would you mind coming and applying and working for us over here at the hospital? I said, sure. And I remember uh, after I talked with him, I, I remember feeling like God said, listen, if you get stuck, I'll take care of you. Because God's not limited to blessing you with what's going on around you. He has friends everywhere. (laughs) What you and I need to do is learn to trust God and do what we do as unto the Lord with everything in us, not working for money, not working for applause, not working, not fighting, not staying in that first level kind of thing where you're just always reacting, but instead you start getting to that place where you have enough time and piety and surrender in your life. It takes a while. You can't do this perfectly. You know, you may do it for a day and then miss it a couple of days, but fight to get there. Learn how to work because if you learn how to work, work will be redeemed. God bless you.